0: I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors In Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors In Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Last episode, we heard from Colonel Bud Anderson, and today we'll hear the rest of his story. Anderson served as a P-51 Mustang pilot in World War II and is the highest-scoring living American fighter ace.
1: You have to remember, um, I was 22 years old. A very young man, (laughs) or an old kid. I'm in a foreign country for the first time in my life, um, engaged in combat. Uh, I've been trained. I'm anxious. I'm eager. I'm patriotic. I want to do my duty. I want to do the best I can. But there's big odds that you might not make it. Uh, You might be killed in this thing. And you wonder inside... um, how am I going to perform personally? You know, am I going to run or am I going to fight? Uh, you don't know. I mean, you can train, but the actual thing is, is real. It's real. Uh, you wonder what you're going to do. The way I entered combat, I flew on somebody else's wing for the first time. And it wasn't on a, just a patrol, you know, an easy thing. What you'd like to do is get a guy about five missions, you know, on, a, on a milk runs, easy flights. Get him used to being over enemy territory. That's an emotional thing right there, to look down and say, you know, if I go down over there, those are all bad guys there. Uh, just to get over that feeling. And my first combat mission, I flew on the wing of a guy, and we actually got in combat. And uh, I was just hanging on. I mean, uh, <laughs> and, but say after you get five, five missions, you get over that initial fear and you survived. Uh, and then if you shoot somebody down yourself, that gives you tremendous confidence. And this overrides the fear. And you're trained to... Uh, you know, we've, we had good training uh, to do your duty, things like this. Now, you get in actual combat. Here you are, one-on-one, kill or be killed. You're so busy trying to survive, trying to achieve your objective, that I found I really didn't have that fear of, um, not that I wasn't <laughs> nervous or apprehensive but you didn't have that little kid fear of the dark, you know, that kind of thing. You're just too busy. Uh, relate it to something like uh, you're in an automobile and you have a close call, say you've gotten a skid and you're trying to or a close almost a collision, you do what you have to do when it's all over, you say, oh my God, that was pretty close. Uh, that's very similar. Of course, in World War II, uh, we were all very young. I'd say in our fighter squadron, uh, average age, uh, was, um, well, let's just take my age, for example. Essentially, I was 22 years old the whole time I flew my combat. I finished my, I finished my last mission on the 15th of, uh, January 1944, and I turned 23 three days before that, 13th. So I was 22 during my whole time. We had guys younger than me, and I had guys a little older than me. Uh, the, um, senior people in our fighter group were you know the group commander the colonel and uh was probably 27 26 28 somewhere in there and uh, now we compare that with um oh yeah and so in those days there were mostly young guys so whenever the old guys were flying with us you'd always say well you know hey Got to watch out for these old guys. Take care of them. So now project yourself ahead uh, to 1970 when I was flying in Vietnam. Now I'm the colonel. I'm the old guy. And I'd say the average age of the fighter pilot, we were flying F-105s, bombing communist uh, targets in Southeast Asia. Uh, Average guy was and I'm just pulling this out of the air, uh, 40-plus, maybe. We had some young lieutenants, you know, that were 26, 27, 28 years old. We called them the super lieutenants. They were really good, well-trained. But we said in those days, us old guys got to look out for those young (laughs) fellows. Quite a turnaround. Just a little bit of history about the 357th Fighter Group. Um... I think we had about 5,000 men total. Had three fighter squadrons and plus all the support units that um, go with it. We were stationed at uh, Leiston Air Base in the United Kingdom during World War II from um, November 1943 to the end of the war. Then our unit went over to Germany as part of the Army of Occupation. We were uh, activated as a... um, as a unit during World War II, a new unit, and trained, went over and fought the war. And then the unit was deactivated. And so we had a limited number of members. Uh, There's no unit today in the United States Air Force called the 357th Fighter Group. We had uh, three squadrons, uh, 362nd, 363rd, 364th Fighter Squadron in the 357th Fighter Group. Our main claim to fame was that we shot down the most airplanes in the shortest time of any unit in the uh, European theater. Perhaps the whole Air Force, I don't know. But we got over 600 um, aerial victories in um, 14 months. The P-47 unit and the 354th Pioneer Mustang group have more air kills, but they were over there. Some of them were over there a couple of years. And so, it's pretty remarkable at the rate that we... And we had 42 aces, and I think that was uh, more than any other fighter group. I believe today that I'm the leading, living Mustang ace. Um, You know, some guys always had um, their last-ditch maneuver, you know, a defensive thing, what what they would do. And... I don't know, you know, it never really crossed my mind, uh, that part of it. I always was thinking, of, what am I going to do to that guy? What am I going to do? It was always uh, to attack the enemy rather than uh, how do I defend against uh, an enemy. I flew uh, two tours of combat with the 357th Fighter Group. My first tour was uh, when I was over there, over about 14 months uh, my first tour was uh, in actual combat, was from February to July of 1944. And I came home on a three-month uh, rest and recuperation, returned, and it was flying combat in September of 44 uh, through January of 1945. And during that time, I flew uh, 116 combat missions, 480 hours of combat flying. I shot down 116 and a quarter enemy airplanes in the air, another one on the ground, and a couple of probables and a couple of damage. And uh, during all of that combat, um, I never uh, received any substantial damage. I think I got one bullet hole through the airplane on. Uh, after D-Day, when we were doing ground strafing and uh, ground support work, I remember we were attacking this uh, rail yard, strafing it, making multiple runs through there. I came back from the mission and uh, told my crew chief, uh, Otto Heino, and I says, hey, airplane's okay, get ready for a morrow. Next day, I came out, and he says, come over here. I want to show you something. And uh, we went over the left wing, and uh, he says, look at that. And uh, a small arms had gone through there, probably a rifle. And it was so small that they had just kind of cut away and put a British shilling coin. They had kind of uh, glued it on there to patch the thing. And, of course, it, it really didn't do any damage. But that's the only damage I had during World War II, other than maybe of hitting a few parts or something in the air. You know war is uh oh war is a bad thing, um no matter how you think about it uh you know, there's nothing like a good war, but i mean uh I think World War II was from the standpoint of uh America standpoint of good and evil, I think we were on the right side uh. Um, Germany, Italy and Japan formed an axis and we're gonna conquer the world essentially and, and put the rest of it to slavery. Um, so there was a high motivation and there was a highly patriotic, the country was very, very patriotic. The home front was uh, uh, affected um, very much by World War II. All of the industry was turned into uh, war production. There were no new cars, uh, no, no um, personal products being produced. Uh, food was rationed. Gasoline was rationed to everybody. Uh, cigarettes were rationed. Uh, it was just a total effort. Uh, every able-bodied man was probably in uniform or He was uh, in some kind of defense industry. Or he was uh, uh, what they call 4F, unfit, uh, health-wise, something like that. Moms and dads uh, were turning in their aluminum pots and pans to build airplanes. Uh, Every family had a a star in the window for a serviceman. Just a tremendous patriotic time where I would say 99% of the country was behind the war effort. I mean, and it just generated uh, a lot of spirit and uh, a lot of dedication. So you have that as the background of doing your duty. Um, So now you get over there and I explained, um, you know, how am I going to do in combat? How am I going to do when I face the enemy? When I have to kill somebody or he's going to kill me, how am I going to react? Am I going to run or am I going to fight? So once you get the experience and uh, we um, do that, you're more confident. you got your confidence. You didn't run. (laughs) And... um, so now, I have no joy about, um, you know, having to kill somebody. Um, I had to face that. I was raised in a religious family and uh, Ten Commandments, and thou shalt not kill. Uh, I had to figure it out in my own mind that um, this was something we had to do. And, you know, that's it. Uh, I was always, uh, whenever I had a victory, so to speak, I was always pleased if the guy bailed out, uh, if he didn't, um, uh, you know, that's tough. But, uh, I was always very elated that it wasn't me that was in that position and, uh, it was him. Uh, I didn't have any particular joy about it. I mean, I'm just happy that I survived. Uh, afterwards, you say when you come back, and that's my initial feelings in the airplane, right there. Is uh, I'm just pleased that uh, I'm survived, and and um, and back on the ground. Of course, uh, uh, we were when we were talking about it and all this stuff. It's. Uh, uh, it's more elation than uh, it certainly isn't depression. I mean, I'm not. Uh, <laughs> the guy was trying to kill me. <laughs> well, I had one particular dogfight where um, I'm out in front of the um, the bomber formation. There, this this section is, there's miles between these large formations in this big stream. And I'm in a dogfight with an ME-109, just the two of us going around, around, around. And we're drifting, we're right in front of the B-17s. And I know if I get there, they're gonna be shooting at me. B-17s didn't care. If you pointed your nose towards them, they're gonna fire at you. Now we did look somewhat like a ME-109, the Mustang did. And the P-47s looked somewhat like a Falk Wolf 190. And so, uh, you can't blame them. I think their idea was if it came through, shoot at it, and we'll sort them out later.
0: <laughs> With the Lucky Lands slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: Well, um, well. in this particular case, uh, May 27th, uh, we were away from the bombers. That was not an opportunity. That, that didn't happen. Uh, in all the dogfights that I had, uh, you know, I flew 116 missions, about 500 hours of combat flying, shot down 16 and a quarter enemy airplanes. I don't think I ever... Followed one through a bomber formation where that opportunity would happen. If you did, it would be a you know it would be a quick thing. You wouldn't be sitting there you know inside of a formation dogfighting with B-17s all around you. Uh, that just wouldn't happen. Why did I name my airplane the Old Crow? Um, obviously, I've been asked that question many times, and I have a prepared statement for you. I, name the, I tell my Baptist friends, my, my non-drinking friends, it's named after the most intelligent bird that flies in the sky, the crow. And that's true. They are considered very, very intelligent. But my drinking buddies all know it's named after that good old Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey. <laughs> now, my wife, Ellie, best thing that ever happened to me of 60-plus years. It will be 60 years next year. She says, uh, you know, most guys name their airplane after their sweetheart or their wife. What do they think's going on here? <laughs> I can't remember a time when I wasn't interested in flying. I mean, I had that desire to fly. As far back as I can remember in my life, um, I was... Uh, inspired or thrilled by Lindbergh's flight. You know, that was fascinating. I lived in Northern California right around uh, several airfields, and as a child, you know, was just fascinated with airplanes. And uh, had pictures of them all over my bedroom wall, little model airplanes hanging from the roof and things, just um, a consuming, all-consuming thing. I wanted to fly off little fighter airplanes fascinated me more i guess i could even think of uh, world war 1 the history of world war 1 the, the aces had more publicity than anybody and you know that you saw more about them and so that fascinated me the battle of britain was going on before i learned how to fly you know and i'd heard about that I learned to fly with, uh, when I went to college, uh, there was no way in the world I could, uh, well, let's drop back a little bit. When I was seven years old, my, my dad knew of these interests and um, we stopped at a little dirt strip there outside of Sacramento and he hired the thing and the, the two of us rode in the front and uh, we went up in this old biplane it was uh, exhilarating and terrifying for a seven year old, but uh, I think it played on my emotions and, and kept my interests up. It was just an incredible feeling the sound and the smells and, uh, and things like this as a kid. I could still remember that. Then later on, um, it was during a kind of a, uh, I was still sort of a depression area. Uh, you know, my parents didn't have enough money to allow me to learn how to fly. So uh, I looked up um, the qualifications for going to joining the Army Air Corps or the Navy. And I learned you had to be 20 years old, had to be physically fit, and you had to have a couple of years of college, a minimum. So this was kind of the peacetime standard at the time. And so I went to... Um, uh, junior college in Sacramento and got my two years of college. I was still 19 when I finished those two years. In my last year of college, um, the government offered a program called Civilian Pilot Training Program, where they subsidized uh, training of a pilot to get more interest in pilots. Uh, I think they knew the war was going to come, and uh, you know this was one way of uh, getting people interested. And for the small price of $9.50 for insurance and my parents' permission, uh, I participated in that program. and I got a private pilot's license in 1941. Um, I flew in a Piper Cub, 40-horse uh, tail dragger with balloon tires and a tail skid, no brakes. And it was probably slower than some of the cars could drive in those days, but it was flying, and it was exhilarating. Uh, It was, you know, I'm thinking of 400 miles an hour and stuff like this, but uh, it's still flying. And um, then I was waiting to be 20 years old, and I wouldn't be for another six or seven months. I got a job as an aircraft mechanic at... um, The old Sacramento Air Depot, which is uh, later McClellan Air Force Base. And actually got a job as an aircraft mechanic, worked on airplanes. And we had P-40s there, B-17s, things like this. And I would get up in the cockpit and (laughs) pretend I was flying. I was a pilot, so I knew some of the functions. And uh, that stirred me on, and it was always better to be in the little fighter because I was in charge. I didn't have to have a crew, and uh, and I thought, well, fighter pilot was a total thing, and, uh, and that probably uh, continued my interest in that. As soon as my uh, 20th birthday came up, um, I um, went right there at McClellan, right down the recruiting office on my 20th birthday, and uh, signed up, and A few days later, I was out of there. Went to primary training, basic training, in California, by the way, and then went to Arizona for my uh, advanced training in in the AT-6. And they wanted uh, pilots in every category. There was vacancies. They were training, uh, just training pilots as fast as they could. And I wanted to be a fighter pilot, Um, and so I got my choice. And uh, that's still where my interests, you know, that's where my interests were my whole military career, although I've flown about everything we had in the Air Force. My uh, flight training program was uh, to teach you the basics of flying. It was probably pretty good, actually. Um, I went to a civilian primary uh, flight training school had experienced instructors that taught us how to fly, get us in the air and safely, and uh, some of the basics. And then we went to basic flying school. This was a military base, and they had military instructors, and we got into formation and a little bit of instrument flying. Now we had a radio to talk on, and had a closed cockpit, and things like this. And then, uh, the final training was in the advanced flying school. We had the AT-6, uh, retractable gear, uh, controllable pitch prop, a little more complex uh, radio. And again, concentrating on formation flying, a little bit of gunnery, um, instrument flying under the hood. Graduated, went to a uh, P-39 unit as a replacement uh, pilot type of thing. Got checked out in fighters, uh, more of the same, flying formation, uh, gunnery, aerial, shooting at aerial targets. Uh, that, and then from there, I was selected as a, a member of a original cadre that formed a fighter group to go fight the war someplace. And as a selected member, that meant I was going to be a flight leader in a, in a squadron uh, to help train other pilots that would come in. And, you know, what would I have? I'd have a hundred hours more than the guys coming in. Uh, some of the training was almost do-it-yourself. Um, we had no combat veterans. Um, we had guys that had been in the Flying Tigers come and talk to us, been in aerial combat. I remember some Royal Air Force guys that were in the Battle of Britain came and talked to us. But, you know, for actual... Combat veterans, I think in our fighter group, we only had uh, one or two, and they'd been, one of them had been in the pacific and and the other guy had been in the Aleutian islands, which really didn 't see any you know aerial combat so uh, some of it you might say was a do it yourself training. We had the basics uh, we knew you know what the formations were and the tactics. Uh, And we'd go up and dogfight with each other to hone our skills. Um, Was the training adequate? Um, I don't know. We um, never flew in big formations before I got to Europe. The biggest formation I ever flew in was probably eight airplanes. And then every day in England, we went out with 16 airplanes and and then two more squadrons, uh, 48, every day. And the big uh, shortcoming was probably instrument flying in actual weather and then flying formation in weather. I didn't have very much actual weather time. I had zero formation weather time, and we had to learn that on the job. Well, you know, uh, during World War II, the it was a big effort by everybody and it took everybody to get the job done. It took all the services to get the job done, the Navy, the Air Force, the ground, everybody. Um, And it took a home front. And I I touched on that before, but the home front was completely turned into war production and and supported the effort 110%. Now you get down into a, down into a squadron, into a fighter squadron. Um, the guys that didn't fly, our ground crew, were all supporting the, the mission of getting the airplane in the, into combat. And they were pumped up just like we were uh, from a patriotism standpoint. <laughs> and, um, and then think about it a little bit. If you were um, crew chief of an airplane, this was your airplane to maintain. That's your pilot if he went down for any reason whatsoever, think how you'd feel about that. Uh, and they were very dedicated. You know, I just can't say enough about our crew chief and the support that we had. I can't remember being being short ammunition, being short gasoline, being short parts. We just had total support. And the guys, uh, the individuals, the crew chief, and the armors and all that worked out in the open. They didn't have hangars to work in. And we had lousy weather in England. We fought through the worst winter in, uh, I don't know, a hundred years in England in 1944. And they were out there at uh, all hours of the night getting those airplanes ready for us to take off pretty early in the morning. And uh, they probably, the ground crews, were just a little bit older than the pilots. And uh, there was a good relationship there. I just remember how dedicated they worked. And I, use, I got this good example to tell you, um, uh, to um, express how much I, I appreciate their effort. Uh, my second tour, Otto Heino was my crew chief from my training days till we went overseas all through up to my finish of my uh, first tour. He was my crew chief. And he had an armor, um, uh, Leon Zimmerman. He didn't take an assistant crew chief. He did it all himself. And he was so meticulous. He was a Ford uh, auto mechanic in the civil life. And I guess that's what got him into the, you know, to be a crew chief. And he would take such care with the airplane that uh it's just incredible. Um, I remember... In the P-39 one time, he says, is there anything I can do for you that uh, would make the airplane better? Well, I remember this time on the windshield, we had this little combining glass right right behind the armor, and it would get dust on it, you know, and it would obscure your vision forward. And there was no way you could clean it. And I said, well, you know, you keep this airplane so clean, I really can't complain, but, you know, look at that... Uh, uh, combining glass there. If you could get that dust off there, it would be absolutely perfect. And the uh, next day I came out and I look up there and that thing is just crystal clean. He'd gotten a turkey feather that he could stuff in there and, and <laughs> dust it off. And uh, that was an example of, uh, you know, how ingenious and, and uh, dedicated he was. But the real story I want to tell you, During my second tour, uh, Otto got promoted to tech sergeant, and therefore, you know, crew chiefs were staff sergeants. So he was uh, assigned as a flight line chief, and he had about six airplanes under him. So when I came back from my second tour, I'm not going to get Otto Heino anymore, so he handpicks another crew chief for me, Mel Schooneman. So I got Schooneman and Zimmerman as my crew but Otto Heino has got the airplane in his flight, and he's always there to see me off, and always there when I came back, and uh, and still kept his personal touch on this airplane. Well, when I came back, uh, I, I got a brand new uh, D model. My other old Crow was, uh, was gone. Uh, I don't know where it went, by the way. It... Um, it was transferred to another pilot, and he flew it to Russia and back, and he finished his tour. And I think the airplane ended up in our little uh, training school uh, for new pilots, and then probably just uh, was a war-weary and disappeared. But um, so I've got this new D model, and it's painted in the camouflage, the dark green camouflage that we had. Now, we were starting to get um, all-aluminum, painted airplanes, and um, we had so many airplanes. Now, we were, we were, pretty soon we were flying them in that paint scheme, aluminum. We didn't bother painting the camouflage on them. But mine's camouflage, okay? So this was, uh, I started flying again in September. In November, I can remember this, we had a mix of airplanes. And I was flying over Germany in uh, November, and I was looking down on the snow. The first snow came over Germany. Now I knew I was going to finish this my tour sometime that winter. Uh, I'd hoped, and I I looked down at those uh, airplanes. There was two camouflaged airplanes and two silver ones. And guess which one looked stood out under the against the snow? The camouflaged airplane, of course. So I got back from that flight and. Uh, the auto was there, and my crew was there, and I said, the airplane's okay, and I said, you know, when we have some heavy maintenance on this airplane, I'd like you to de it and put it in the silver, the natural aluminum paint scheme, and I told him the reason that I thought it would help me. It'd be more camouflage than a camouflage airplane in the winter, and uh, I would uh, appreciate that, and, so I went in. I was the operations officer then. I decided I was going to fly the next day, put my name on the board, went and forgot about it. Next day, we'd get up and go have breakfast, get the briefing, come down to the squadron, and I uh, get my parachute. My hard stand was right outside of, the, of our operations, and I could walk out to it. I didn't have to drive around and come into the front of the thing. So I had my parachute on, and I climb up over this uh, revetment wall, and I looked down there, and there's this Mustang standing there in gleaming aluminum. And I i was really shocked, you know, and I hear these poor guys, there's three of them were kind of standing there at attention, and I walked up there, and I looked at them, and their hands were raw, literally bloody, and they from the moment I would said that yesterday, they started working on that thing, worked straight through the night, got it depainted, ready to go. And I felt kind of like a jerk for the minute there. I said, God, did these guys think I gave them a direct order to do that? And Then I thought about it a minute, and I said, no, no. It came from here. They wanted to do it. It's just an example of how dedicated they were. I just can't say enough about them. You train in a fighter group back here in the States. You get to know everybody in your squadron. You know your, everybody in your flight. Uh, it's a great way to fight. If you're going to fight, that's the way to do it. You don't even need a call sign. You, when you hear a guy's voice, you know who it is. You don't have to know if it's a Red 4 or whatever it is. You can recognize him. Uh, you know the talent, the skills of each guy. You know who you can depend on, who you who not to depend on. Stuff like that. Great friendships um, uh, evolve in this. And then how do you cope with that when you uh, come back from a mission and the guy doesn't come back? You got an empty bunk over there in the bunkhouse. It's a tough thing. Uh, I just kind of... Pull the curtain down and try to keep it out of your mind uh, other people would um, be standoffish don't don't have good friends uh avoided people avoided this kind of a thing It's just something you, each person had to learn how to cope with uh, personally loss of a friend loss of a squadron mate um, i um I had a tremendous relationship with uh members of my uh my flight, my squadron. I thought so much of them that I actually named my son after uh, two of them, and both of them were killed in combat. Uh, Jim Browning was one. Uh, he did a second tour. We were talking about how guys did second tours. He just did a continuous tour, and uh, he later got shot down when he made a head-on-pass with a German jet, ME-262, and they collided. Both of them were killed. Uh, Eddie Simpson was the other one. He was my wingman, and then he became my element leader, and then he was a flight leader by himself. All these guys grew up in the, in the squadron as the combat went on. Uh, I had already left the squadron, um, was home, and I read about The Russian shuttle raid? Well, he would have gone on it. And he looked at the schedule and realized that if he went on the Russian shuttle mission, he would uh, exceed his uh, combat tour by, I don't know, four or five flights, because they'd fly over, run a mission, fly to Italy, fly a mission, and fly back to England and start over again. And he only had about two missions to go. So he opted to stay in um, England while they went on the Russian raid, and he was killed in a mid-air collision with another Mustang. And uh, he survived. He parachuted out. The other guy was killed. And this was after the invasion, of course. And he landed in um, mm, central France somewhere. They got a monument for him in this town, by the way. And he joined up with the Free French. And they were... um, We got this information much later, and they were uh, stopped by a roadblock of German soldiers. I mean, this is wars going on, I mean, (laughs) big time. And he and um, one Frenchman jumped out of the truck when they reversed, and um, they shot at the Germans while they escaped, and they were both killed. And so that was Eddie Simpson, so I named my son uh, James Edward Anderson. What's the difference between a good fighter pilot and a great fighter pilot? Uh, I thought about that a lot. And uh, Let's say that both of them are trained equally. Both of them have the same background. Both of them have um, about the same flying time. Both have good eyes. Both have a good understanding of tactics and things like this. Uh, this all applies. You have to know your enemy. You've got to know what to do. Uh, what does make the difference between a great fighter pilot and a good fighter pilot? And I think it's um, something internal, uh, something up here or in your heart. Call it a fighting spirit. Um, call it what you want, motivation. The guy that wants it more. You've got to want to do it. You gotta want to do it. You take an average—not um, an average—but let me just give you a fighter squadron. You got a, a group of people; a few probably don't belong there. You got another bunch that are um, uh, doing a good job, but that's all they're doing. You know, they're there all the time. Then you got the other guys that'll go with you and uh, are doing a good job. Then. Probably some of the aces are the are the better ones, and uh, they want to do it. Can you imagine a guy going, um, flying an entire combat tour and never seeing an enemy airplane? I don't know. Um, I could see him. I had good eyesight, stuff like that. But I wanted to see him. Uh, I don't know. You know, there were. Uh, it's it's kind of a hard thing to say, but. I think it's motivation, patriotism, whatever whatever you want to call it. But you had to want to do it. You had to want to go up there every day and do it.
0: That was Colonel Bud Anderson. If you enjoyed this episode, check out the show description where you can find links to more of Bud's interviews, his wartime photos, and more. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director. And Sean Ruhl Hoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words.
1: It was said that on the ship that traveled to the POW camp, the conditions were so horrible and the hold was so crowded that men would simply die standing up. Letters from my father is a new docu-series podcast starring Jack Quaid from Oppenheimer and the Boys. It's the story of one woman who retraces her World War II veteran father's steps after he was captured by the Japanese and kept in one of the most notorious POW camps and had to find a way to survive. You can find Letters from My Father from Voyage Media anywhere you listen to podcasts.